A reading from Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. So then, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. Then they will live in their own land. This is the word of the Lord. One of the themes that we've been exploring this Advent season is the tension between lament and hope, between the already and the not yet of God's kingdom. How do we cling to faith? How do we praise God from the muck and the mire? How do we hope without turning a blind eye to the painful and unresolved parts of our lives? How do we testify to new creation when evil seems to be winning? How do we make sense of God's promises when everything around us seems to be falling apart? We're not the first to feel this tension or to ask these questions. They've been part of the soundtrack of God's people for thousands of years. Jeremiah and his contemporaries lived in this tension and wrestled with these very questions. Jeremiah had a tough job. He was God's mouthpiece during some of Israel's darkest days. He's often called the weeping prophet because he had a tender heart. He felt God's pain when Israel wandered away from him. He felt compassion when Israel suffered as a result of their unfaithfulness. He felt despondent when he preached and preached for decades and no one heeded his words. His ministry was wrapped around the fall of Jerusalem and Israel's exile into Babylon. The exile was Israel's all is lost moment. That's because Babylon's goal was not to tax and oppress Israel, but to assimilate them into their culture until Judaism ceased to exist. To erase from history 
their culture, their religion, everything that made them unique. Exile was not only a national crisis and a political crisis, it was a spiritual crisis. God promised Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him, that his family would become a great nation, a kingdom of priests. How could God fulfill that promise if Israel is swallowed up? God promised David that his royal line would never end. Isaiah said, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness forever. But now that that line is broken, what will become of the promise? When Isaiah talks about the people walking in darkness, this is what he's talking about. A national catastrophe that calls into question not only Israel's viability and future, but everything God had promised them and everything God had promised to do for the nations through them. Our passage today begins with Jeremiah answering an important question Why did the exile happen? God doesn't mince words. He says to Israel's kings, because you have scattered my flock, this is not the right text. Well, I probably made a mistake. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done. Israel's kings were supposed to shepherd Israel like a flock. But they had neglected them, choosing instead to seek their own interests first. And as shepherds go, so go the sheep. When the shepherds fail, the flock scatters. A crisis of leadership can bring ruin on a family, an organization, a church, a nation. We know this. So now what? Now that their greatest fears have been realized, is there any hope for Israel? Jeremiah says, yes, there is still hope. Yes. In fact, Israel has three reasons to hope. First, God will shepherd his flock. God will do a new thing. Salvation will come to Israel like a bolt out of the blue. Second, God will raise up a truly righteous king to shepherd his people with wisdom and justice. And third, what God will do to resolve this national catastrophe will be even more surprising and wondrous than the exodus, which is a stunning thing to say. The exodus from Egypt had been the defining moment of Israel's history, the miracle that made them a people. Now, if you were a Babylonian and you overheard Jeremiah's words, you would laugh out loud. Because at this stage in the game, Israel had nothing. They had no temple, no land, no army, no king, no freedom, no pride. They had nothing. 
When Jeremiah says, hope is not lost, you can understand why people would snicker and scoff at those words. But God. God did everything he said he would do, and it is all historically verifiable. What God does next is not a matter of faith. It is a matter of history. First, he brought his people out of exile, and he brought them back to the land. Without any help, from anyone in Israel. No king negotiated their return. No army brought the enemy to the bargaining table. No political strategist orchestrated a meeting of the minds. No spiritual revival broke out. What God did in bringing his people back to the land was nothing that anyone in Israel could take an ounce of credit for. Here's what happened. About 50 years after exile began, the Persians rose to power and conquered the Babylonians. The Persians had different goals, different priorities. They were more interested in building their empire than they were in subjugating people. So instead of assimilating those they conquered, they allowed them to live on their own land according to their own laws and practice their own religion. Now, what we have to understand is that no empire had ever done this before in the history of the world. The Persians were the very first empire to practice what we would call religious tolerance. But that's not all. Not only did King Cyrus allow the Jews to return to their own land and demand nothing from them in terms of tribute, he also paid out of his own treasury for Israel to rebuild their temple. Do you see now why Jeremiah says you thought the exodus was special? Pharaoh only let the people go after a series of plagues brought him to his knees. And as soon as he let them go, he immediately regretted his decision and sent an army after them. Whereas Cyrus not only lets Israel go, he demands nothing from them, and he foots the bill for their new temple. But God, God was their shepherd. He brought them back. No one in Israel could take credit for it. No one could have seen it coming. Babylon was not a problem for God. Let's uh, go back to Isaiah, uh, yeah, Isaiah 40. Here we go. Can you give me the front end of the Isaiah 40 text? Babylon was not a problem for God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Babylon was not a problem for God. He made a way where there was no way. Is there a problem in your life you can't solve? Is there an obstacle you can't find a way around? Nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing is impossible for him. 
In verse 4, God says that when his people return to the land, he will raise up human leaders, and he does. He raises up a quartet of godly leaders. Zerubbabel, who became the governor of Judea. Joshua, the high priest. Ezra, the Bible nerd. And Nehemiah, the project manager. Not a king among them. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes God in his mercy doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need. When Israel needed, what, what they needed was clear priorities and spiritual renewal. These four leaders gathered the people. Together they read the law of Moses. They prayed and confessed their sins for days at a time. They renewed their covenant with Yahweh and they got to work building the temple. The best leaders have a clear sense of what's most important. They make things simple, not complicated. They gather people and they help them to focus their attention and effort on the most important things. Jeremiah promised that God would give Israel a truly righteous king from the line of David. And he did, though not for another 500 years. Jesus is in every way a different kind of king. Matthew and Luke seem to go out of their way to show us just that. Matthew contrasts Jesus with Herod. Herod, the puppet king, was deeply insecure. He desperately tried to cling to power. When he sensed a threat, he lashed out. Herod would do anything to hold on to his position, to hold on to his power. Jesus, by contrast, gives up his power. He gave up his wealth. He gave up his security. He was born into poverty. Instead of a palace, a cave. Instead of nobles and priests, shepherds and astrologers. Instead of a warm reception, Jesus and his family had to flee and seek asylum in Egypt. Luke contrasts Jesus with Caesar Augustus. Caesar calls for a census of the known world. The purpose of a census, of course, is to tax people and build an army, to accumulate more and more power and wealth. By contrast, Jesus' parents were so poor, they couldn't afford the standard offering for his dedication. Jesus is no ordinary king. He's a humble king. He's a shepherd king. He's a righteous king. The words righteousness and justice often show up in tandem in the Bible. The righteous see and honor the image of God in every person. They never lose track of a person's inherent value, dignity, and worth. The Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke says that the unrighteous disadvantage others to advantage themselves. That's what King Zedekiah and the other failed shepherds did. They put themselves first. But the righteous, according to Waltke, disadvantage themselves in order to advantage others. And that's what Jesus did. There's a recurring motif in the Gospels that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really want us to notice. Jesus keeps switching places with the people he meets. 
For example, when the paralytic in Mark 2 meets Jesus, he is bound to his mat. And Jesus is moving freely from town to town. But at the end of the gospel, the paralytic is free to skip down the road praising God while Jesus' hands and feet are bound to the cross. When the leper in Mark 1 meets Jesus, he is estranged from the community. He's forced to live outside the city. While Jesus is so popular that the crowds follow him everywhere he goes. But in the end, the leper is healed physically. He's restored to the community socially. While Jesus is mocked, rejected, tortured, and ultimately crucified, where? Outside the city. When Zacchaeus in Luke 19 meets Jesus, he suffers the indignity of having to climb a tree in order to get over the judgmental religious crowd. While Jesus' feet are firmly planted on the ground. But in the end, Zacchaeus is assured of his place in God's kingdom. While Jesus must suffer the indignity of his own tree, except his is a cross. Jesus really is the righteous king. He really does disadvantage himself in order to advantage other people. He really does create new possibilities for the marginalized and the oppressed, for the poor and the sick and those with disabilities. But almost always at his own expense. There's a particularly poignant moment toward the end of Jesus' earthly life. Luke writes, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus was right. That's exactly what happened 40 years later. Jesus is lamenting like Jeremiah. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They didn't recognize him. Many rejected him. Just a few days later, crowds would call for his execution. Is Jesus angry about this? Actually, no. He weeps. He's filled with sorrow. Why? Because he so desperately longs to be their shepherd. He longs to gather them and give them his peace but they will not have it. Perhaps a week before this took place, Jesus is on a retreat with his disciples and he gets word that his good friend Lazarus is sick. By the time he gets to his friend's house, it's too late. Lazarus is dead. Jesus goes to the tomb where his friend is buried. Everyone's watching including Jesus' enemies. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. 
And Lazarus walks out of the grave. And the whole time, Jesus knows that the only way to revive Lazarus is by springing his own trap. Sure enough, that day, the authorities begin plotting how to take Jesus' life. Jesus really is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Aren't you glad we have a king like him? Well, what do we do with this passage? How does it speak to us? How does it shape our circumstances? Well, first, we can't escape the fact that God puts self-serving leaders on notice. Every kind of leader, too, civic, spiritual, anyone who is responsible for the care and protection of others, parents, teachers, landlords, property managers, bosses, mayors, governors, pastors. If you are a leader, if you are responsible in some way for other people, what are you doing with your power and influence? How are you treating the sheep that God has entrusted to you? Are you honoring the image of God in them? Are you doing everything in your power to make sure that each one has the opportunity to fulfill their God-given potential as much as it depends on you? Are you gathering or scattering the sheep? Are you leaving them beside quiet waters or are you leaving them to fend for themselves? If you're a leader, your power, your influence are on loan from God. And you are responsible to use your position in ways that honor Him and those that He created in His own image and likeness. God ordained leaders to care for the sheep, to create the conditions in which they can flourish. What are you doing with your power? Are you leading like Jesus? Or if you're not a leader, what kind of a leader are you looking for? The world values good looks, charisma, toughness, credentials, and people who tell us what we want to hear. But what if Jesus became our template? What if we looked for leaders who respected their enemies? Leaders who use their power to serve rather than dominate. Who promote oneness rather than division. What if we looked for leaders who are willing to make personal sacrifices for the good of those they lead? Is that crazy? Or is it crazy that we've settled for leaders who do the exact opposite? Second, this text reminds us that God does not depend on human leaders to fulfill his purposes in the world. God does not need us. God works in mysterious ways. He brings forth new possibilities. He makes a way where there is no way. Do you believe this? God does not need politicians and political victories to advance his kingdom. If you hear a politician say, I am the Lord's anointed, or only I can do this, 
or I am your only hope. I don't care what side of the aisle they're on. Christians should immediately recognize this as idolatry. Politicians are servants, not saviors. We already have a savior. True leaders inspire confidence, not fear. True leaders gather and unite people rather than scatter and divide them. True leaders build capacity in and empower others rather than foster dependency. Likewise, God does not need charismatic, high-profile leaders to advance his church. One of the most grievous things I've observed in the church in my lifetime is the phenomenon of pastors and ministry leaders who not only abuse their office and abuse people, but then go on to intimidate their victims into silence by saying things like, if you go public with this, you will bring irreparable harm to this ministry that God is using to change lives. So if you care about the gospel, if you care about Jesus changing lives, you won't say a word about this to anyone. This is pure evil. Godly leaders don't intimidate people into silence, and they don't sacrifice people to protect the brand. Don't tell me you're trying to protect the ministry. How you deal with your sin and how you treat others is your ministry. When I was a teenager, two of my pastors left the ministry in disgrace. One was sleeping with three of the women on the church staff. The other was a pedophile. It was an incredibly shocking, painful, and disillusioning time. Looking back, it is amazing to me that the church not only survived these scandals, but continued to grow and even became a refuge for people who were disillusioned by hypocrisy and for people who were coming to grips with their own shadow size. On paper, this never should have happened. But God, please hear me, I am not saying that God's ability to shepherd the flock without our help absolves us of our responsibility to do what's right. One day, every one of us will have to stand before Jesus and give an account for our lives. How we led, how we treated people. And we should remember and think about this often. But we can also take courage that God is not limited by our faithfulness or lack thereof. He is the God who makes springs in the desert, who turns graves into gardens, who gives beauty for ashes. Thank God he is. One last thing that strikes me about this text is that God can do amazing things through a tiny group of people who are spiritually alert and seeking after him. He liberated a nation with a handful of people back in Moses' day. He brought Israel back from the brink with a remnant in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. He brought Jesus into the world through two young people who were just getting started and two very old people who were ready to die. On the morning of Pentecost, there were 120 Christians in the entire world, and most of them were poor and uneducated. But they were enough to launch the most consequential movement in the history of the world. God can do a lot with a little.
Never underestimate what God can do through a small group of people who are seeking his face. Recovery Church was birthed from a tiny group that met faithfully, prayed fervently, and loved extravagantly. The civil rights movement began with a few sermons and some community organizing that was rooted in the gospel and bathed in prayer. Advent and Christmas invite us to intensify our prayers for God to do a new thing, to build his kingdom here and now. Look around you. What's broken in the world? What's missing? Where do you see the darkness winning? Go. Stand in it. Cry out. Better yet, gather a handful of people and start crying out together. Prayer is not the opposite of action. Prayer is action, and prayer stimulates action, and prayer sustains action over time. Where do you ache in your spirit? What is the source of your holy discontent? Is it racism, polarization, poverty, disunity, unbelief, mental illness? Gather others who ache just like you do and cry out together. Ask God to do a new thing and be willing to obey him in whatever way he calls you. The seeds of the next great revival or the next great reform could be in this room. The world you long for may seem impossible, but God, let's pray. Gracious God, God of the impossible, God who makes a way where there is no way, help us to trust in you when the darkness seems to be winning. Teach us to pray without ceasing, to obey when you call. May we as a church be a brilliant echo of our Lord Jesus and his self-giving love. And may you use us to pierce the darkness and bring hope and new life to a weary world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.